The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. I want to direct your attention this morning to two texts in the Gospel according to Luke and then the first few verses of the book of Acts. We're going to be meditating pretty much every other week throughout this academic year on the book of Acts, actually almost all on Acts 1. We're just going to chew it for all the flavor it has and nourishment it has for us for almost the whole year, I think. Um, and so we're going to just take it a little bit at a time and, and, and uh, delight in it. Uh, Beginning with Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, then to the last chapter of Luke, uh, chapter 24, and then to Acts 1. So this is really Luke's prologue to both volumes, both the Gospel and the book of Acts. And he writes the word of God, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good <coughs> to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then to the last chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, Uh, Chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. Resurrection, appearance of the Lord Jesus. As they, this is now the assembled group, uh, at least the 11 plus the two who have returned from Emmaus and perhaps others. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And then Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is God's word to us. As I mentioned, we're going to be reflecting on the book of Acts uh, off and on throughout this year as I have opportunity to bring the word to us. Uh, Acts is a unique book in the New Testament, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, it is the, the, Luke of the four evangelists is the one whom the Holy Spirit inspired to carry the story forward into what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension and enthronement at the right hand of God, what Jesus continued to do and teach in the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. 
Acts has been called the light on the tunnel period of early Christian history. Uh, The imagery is uh, of the train going into a tunnel, a dark tunnel. We have, uh, in the daylight, we have the witness of the four gospels to the earthly ministry of Jesus climaxing in his death and resurrection. Uh, And then we emerge the other end of the tunnel. If we had no acts, we would suddenly have a burst of correspondence from some fellow named Paul, who's never mentioned in the gospels, and he's writing to churches that are obviously composed of non-Israelites in many different cities, and we would say, what has happened here? But we have a light. We have the book of Acts that shows us some of the transition points between those two. Uh, that shows us how Christ began to spread the word, which he had announced in the Gospels that he was going to send his apostles among the nations, uh, and, and how the Apostle Paul would be seized out of a, a life of rebellion, self-righteous rebellion, and, and put into service as the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, we know that history because of Acts. Uh, but Acts is more than history. It's also theology. It's pastoral theology, for people like Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. His, his title suggests probably some high, relatively high social standing in the, in the Roman strata of things. Uh, and he has been taught the things about Christ. Uh, the word here is kadekao, and it may actually refer to that kind of consistent catechesis. Uh, it's possible he was only a, an interested bystander, but my hunch is he's a, a Gentile believer and needs, as Luke says in the prologue to the gospel, needs certainty about the things that he has been taught. So how does Luke answer Theophilus' need for certainty and and our need for certainty uh, about events that took place now for us long ago and far away, but events that Luke tells us so clearly have world-shaking and life-transforming significance? In the church I grew up in, one of the favorite songs, uh, I actually had to look up the author's name, is he was Alfred Ackley, and he wrote this song in 1933. It's a song called He Lives. Maybe some of you have sung it at some point. Uh, if you don't recognize it, then you're younger than I. Well, you are, aren't you? Um, he lives, he lives. He's in the world today. Uh, and, and that song in the chorus gave the absolutely irrefutable clinching evidence that Jesus is alive. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Now, by the time I got to college, and even into seminary, that particular answer to the question really made me cringe. I don't know what it does to you, but it made me cringe uh, I didn't know a lot about postmodern relativism, but I knew that a postmodern relativist would hear me say that and smile and say, yeah, that works for you, not for me. Your little T-truth is fine for you, but I have my own truth. I was really uncomfortable with that, and I thought, this is too subjectivistic. I need something objective, outside me, not he lives within my heart. Eventually, I ran across the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 5, which uh, began to answer the question the way I wanted it to. How do I know that the Bible is true? It says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, 
The efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. That's the objectivity I wanted. But then the confession went on to say, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So maybe Ackley wasn't exactly 100% wrong. And in fact, the Westminster Confession, I think, may be referring to what Luke himself describes puts uh, in when he records for us the words of the apostles in the fifth chapter of Acts, when the apostles answered the Sanhedrin, we are witnesses of the resurrection, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him, who obey the gospel call. So there is the role of the Holy Spirit working within us. And even that bit about Jesus living within my heart, I suspect that's drawn from Jesus' promise in John 14 that he and the Father will dwell with us, in us, by the Spirit, and Paul's reference in Ephesians 3 to Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. So eventually my quibble with the song of my youth was not with what it said, but with what it omitted. That it gave only a partial answer. And in fact, I suggest that it doesn't give the answer that Luke wants to emphasize for us here at the beginning of Acts. How did these apostles know that Jesus was alive from the dead? He gave them many proofs, or as many versions. And actually, the Bauer and Gingrich Donker lexicon says, many convincing proofs. Let's beef it up a little bit there. Many convincing proofs. That's what's omitted in He lives, that song. And that's what Luke wants to emphasize from the opening words of the gospel. As you heard, he stresses the matter of eyewitnesses to what has transpired in the Christian community. And he goes on to stress public history and his careful research. In fact, the public history, as you begin to go into chapters 1 and 2 and even into 3, you find all these references to public history. When Herod was king of Judea, God sent his angel Gabriel to announce the birth, the impending birth of John the Baptist to his father, unbelieving father Zechariah, at least initially. Uh, The census ordered by Caesar Augustus in the second chapter. Quirinius governed Syria at that point. Chapter 3, John begins his public ministry when Tiberius Caesar rules the empire and Pontius Pilate governs Judea. Herod Antipas and Philip and Lysanias and Annas Annas and Caiaphas are all mentioned there in terms of their leadership role in uh, in the eastern part of the empire. And of course at the end of Luke's gospel when he comes to that focus on the resurrection, that the risen Lord has come back from the dead, we heard how Jesus gave proofs to overcome the doubts and unbelief and fears of his eyewitnesses. They were not inclined toward wishful thinking, hoping Jesus might rise from the dead. No, it was the last thing they expected. And so he invited them to see and touch his wounds. He said, do you have anything to eat? And they watched him chew and swallow broiled fish to make the point, as Luke quotes him, a spirit does not have flesh and blood. 
as you see that I have. And Luke sums all this up at the beginning of Acts, right up front by saying, these apostles, eyewitnesses on which your faith is based, are eyewitnesses because Jesus gave them many convincing proofs that he was indeed alive after he suffered death. The risen Lord Jesus' multiple appearances over a span of 40 days to various individuals and groups of various sizes. You can compare the brief accounts that we have at the end of the Gospels and Luke's brief summary here with a somewhat longer list that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, and by the way, many of them, most of the 500 are still alive. Interview them if you don't believe me. Those demonstrations expel doubts from unbelieving hearts and turn terrified converts into bold and sober witnesses, testifying to the resurrection of Christ. And as we move through Acts, we'll hear often the apostles are described as Jesus' witnesses. They could not have been his witnesses, apart from his many convincing proofs that he was and is indeed alive after he suffered death. So Luke goes out of his way to belabor the point that his message is grounded in the matrix of dust and stones and flesh and blood and bones, real politics, real people, times and dates and places, mundane history, a lot like the history we live through. And yet God had broken in and brought a message and an event that had universal ramifications to everybody everywhere. I don't know if we realize how outlandish that claim would have sounded in many ancient ears. We know it sounds absurd to postmodern relativists, but in the ancient world as well, it would have sounded arrogant. It would have sounded ridiculous. Robert Wilkin, a historian at the University of Virginia, concludes his some of his studies on the Christian claim in the early centuries, in the, in the patristic period, uh, he says, among other things, by appealing to a particular history as the source of knowledge of God, Christian thinkers in those early centuries transgressed the conventions that govern civilized theological discourse in antiquity. No, no, not polite, Right? Wilkins says, the oldest and most enduring criticism of Christianity is an appeal to religious pluralism, an appeal to religious pluralism. Its classical statement was the report of Symmachus, the Roman senator, to the emperor Valentinian in the fourth century in the face of what he considered to be Christian exclusivism. Symmachus defended a genial toleration of differing ways to the divine. He's right in tune with our time, isn't he? In fact, Wilkins even says, all the ancient critics of Christianity were united in affirming that there is no one way to the divine. That's what all of the opponents agreed on. And, of course, we'll see in the book of Acts that the apostles, on, in contradiction to what is polite and what was the consensus, dared to say, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else except Jesus of Nazareth, that concrete historical person. For there is no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. Now, where did they get that outlandish, offensive idea that a particular man at a particular time in a particular place was the only route to God? You know, from Jesus. From Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How did they come to believe Jesus' astonishing claim? Well, now we're back to Acts 1-3. Many convincing proofs that he is indeed alive. And that's a good place for us to begin this reflection on the book of Acts. We spend long days, long weeks, in books and journal articles and lectures and conversations and concepts and theories and arguments pro and con and that just might come to your mind, is this just all about words, words and words and more words? Is there anything behind it? If you ever find your heart or mind kind of adrift in that, is this just about theories and concepts and words and... and, Let Luke take you back to the concrete events of the first century, to the real world, to the testimony of men who knew Jesus up close and personal, men whose hopes had been dashed by his death, but who then were surprised by joy, and whose hopes were banished by the overwhelming evidence that he presented that he was indeed alive from the dead touch my hands touch my feet touch my side watch me eat fish (laughs) this is real stuff this is real life God's spirit ultimately is the one who speaks into our hearts the truth of the gospel but the God who speaks in scripture and who sends his spirit into our hearts, has acted in history. And that's the point Luke wants to start us with here. He's acted in history, and our faith rests on the testimony of eyewitnesses who saw him after he rose from the dead. That is our encouragement as the spirit brings that deeply into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness to us in Jesus We thank you and praise you for your almighty power that raised him from the dead. We thank you for your kind condescension to our unbelief by also letting those first eyewitnesses go through a period of doubt and discouragement and despair and then having their unbelief overwhelmed with the demonstration of Jesus' resurrection life in flesh and bones. We thank you that your son reigns at your right hand now and that he has poured out the Holy Spirit who bears witness outside us in the word written and the word preached, but also confirms that as he works within our hearts. We pray that we might be sensitive to the Spirit's testimony to that word that comes to us from without in all of our studies. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.